The reading is taken from 1 Kings 17, 7 to 24. Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The, far, the, ju- the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Some time later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room, where he was staying and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the body three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son's alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Good morning. Let's pray. Now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Father, may we hear your truth this morning. May we know your truth. May we respond to your truth as we look at your word together. Amen. 
So um, let's, we're going to crack on. We're going to get straight into it. So if you were here last week, you would have heard um, Matt talking about the bit before this. And we're going to pick up where Matt left us at the end of last week. A severe drought in the nation of Israel, which will not end until Elijah, God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, uh, will say so. And he is hiding from the evil king, uh, King Ahab and his godless wife, Jezebel, and he's hiding in a ravine. And God has been feeding him and providing for him in the ravine. But this is where our story begins today. Verse 7, sometime later, the brook dries up because there had been no rain in the land. And so God declares to Elijah how he's going to solve this problem. He says, verse 9, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, in this short verse, what we have is two very, very surprising things for Elijah. The first one is Zarephath, and this, however you say it, and the other one is the widow. Zarephath was not in the land of Israel. It was a coastal town in the area that was ruled by Jezebel's father. And if you were here last week, you would have heard Matt talk about how Jezebel came from a kingdom where pagan worship, these pagan gods were worshipped. Jezebel had married Israel's king, and so now Israel was following the gods from this pagan land. And so the surprise to Elijah would have been that God, to help feed him, provide his needs, was sent not back to Israel, but right to the very heart of darkness, the very heart of the nation where these gods were being worshipped. That's the first surprise. The second surprise is he was sent to a widow. A widow, as we know, would have been the poorest of the poor. This widow was fortunate because she still had a son alive, as we'll come on to in a minute. But he, she would have been the poorest of the poor. God's solution for Elijah's needs is in the very dragon's den of God's enemies and out of the hands of the poorest of the poor. But Elijah, in a classic case, if you were here last week, of saying, I can't, God can, I think I'll let him, we read verse uh, 10, so he went. He doesn't question God, he goes. And uh, sure enough, he comes across a widow gathering sticks, and he asks her for a drink of water. And as she's going in obedience, he pushes his luck a little bit more. Don't just bring me a drink, he says, verse 11. Bring me some bread. And she responds this. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Just got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, enough for one final meal for me and my son, and then we will die because it's going to run out and there is nothing left. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, even at this point, the widow is recognizing something in Elijah, something about God, something about a God that's unknown to her. As surely as the Lord your God lives. Elijah says to her these amazing words, verse 13. He says, don't be afraid. Go home, do what you said. Make this final little meal. 
But then he throws her this incredible warning, uh, not warning, this challenge. And he says, before you make it for you and your son, make a little loaf for me. And then go and make food for your family. This is such a demand on the widow. It is such a test of her faith. And maybe when she said, yes, I'll go get you a drink of water, maybe he saw something in her which said, maybe this woman is going to have faith here. And what Elijah does here is he then backs up his statement, don't be afraid, and he backs it up with a promise. And he says to her, if, if you go and make this cake for me, he says this, verse 14, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the little jar of flour will not be used up, the jug of oil will not run dry. And for some reason, this promise is enough for the widow. And she goes away and she does, verse 15, as Elijah has told her. And God, always faithful to his promises, comes up good. So there was food every day, verse 15, for Elijah and for the woman and her family. The jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord. God made a promise, and he was faithful to that promise. Just as a, a slight aside here, it's probably we can imply that the provision of this miraculous oil, this miraculous flour, was given on a daily basis. It wasn't that she went home and found a massive sack of flour and a huge vat of oil and thought, I'll be fine for a few months. This was probably something they had to re-trust God for every day that he was staying there. This, of course, is what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Give us enough for each day, God. It's what the Israelites had experienced in the desert when every day the manna fell and this strange food was, was on the floor every morning, but they weren't to gather more than they needed for that one day. Give us each day what we need. So far, so good. Happy, happy ever after. But then the story takes a turn for a worse. Verse 17, sometimes late, sometime later, the son of the woman, the son of a widow, the only hope she had once the drought finished, the son of the widow who owned the house became ill. He got worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And quite naturally and totally understanding, and I'm sure many of us have been, there, been in this situation, she says to Elijah, what did you have against me? Did you come to remind me of my sin? And that's an almost universal thing, isn't it? That when things go wrong, we, we want to blame something. We might blame God. We might think it's to do with our sin. We might make those connections. Elijah responds by asking her to give him the son, and he takes the son, and he carries him up to the upper room or the roof where he would have been staying. But he also has huge questions for God in this suffering. Verse 20, he cries out to God, Lord my God, why have you brought this tragedy? Have you brought this tragedy on this widow by causing her son to die? Then he does this strange thing, verse 21, and it says that he stretches himself out three times over the body, the lifeless body of this widow's son. Stretches himself out three times. We don't know why, um, 
Maybe it was something to do with sort of respiration and getting breath into it, into the, into the boy. We don't really know. But prophets often act with action as well as with words. Prophet, prophets all often bring uh, God's truth through what they do as well as what they say. And maybe this was a prophetic action. But he knows it's to do with prayer because he prays, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Amazingly, incredibly, the Lord hears Elijah's cry. Verse 22, the boy's life returns to him and he lived. This is the first example in scripture of someone being raised from the dead. And what's interesting is it doesn't go to a person in Israel. It doesn't go to one of David's sons or Abraham's family or one of the great, the great legends of the, Israeli, of the Israel nation's faith and their journey. It goes to some non-Israeli, some non-follower of Jesus, of God, who, someone who doesn't really have much faith but somehow acted out of what little faith she had. And she is the one who experiences the resurrection power that God has. Elijah picks up the woman, carries him downstairs, says, look, your son is alive. And now we have this amazing statement of trust and faith. Verse 24, the passage finishes. The woman says, now I know you are a man of God. And now I know that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. She'd already addressed him as a man of God and acknowledged that he followed the Lord, his God. But now she was owning that for herself. She was owning that faith for herself. It's an incredible story. We could probably talk about it for weeks, I think. But um, So I'd like to encourage you to go home and grab your Bibles and read it and study it yourself because there's lots of good stuff in it. But I just want to raise two simple points, really, and, um, and then think about how we might respond to these two simple points. And both these points are do with the word contrast. I think this is a story of incredible contrast, and I think God is deliberately highlighting contrast in this story. And the first area of contrast is to do with the pagan gods that we hear about. So on one side, you've got Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God that we worship thousands of years later as Christians. And on the other side, you have, for example, these are just two of many, you have Baal and Mot. And there's a huge contrast between these, these gods on either side. Baal as, uh, and his wife, whatever that means in the godly world, um, godly with a small g, uh, what, and his wife Asherah, as, as Matt said last week, they're responsible for abundance and fertility and growth. So the fact that the crops had failed was linked with Baal. It was caused by God, but that was all to do with Baal. People worshipping Baal would have gone, why have our crops failed? Everything to do with bringing life was to do with Baal. On the other hand, Mot is the opposite. Mot was the god of death. And interesting, Baal and Mot were enemies because Baal was all about bringing life, bringing fertility, bringing hope, bringing crops. Mot was all about killing life, ending life, being God over death. 
Many would have thought that God had no authority in Zarephath. This was the kingdom. This was the heart of darkness. This was Baal's territory. This was Asherah's territory. This was Mot's territory. But God has authority everywhere, even over the land ruled by Baal. He can bring drought anywhere. He can provide miraculously through, through flour and oil anywhere. He can bring back to life anywhere. He is not defeated by Baal or by Mot. He is the only true God. He doesn't need to submit to Baal, even in Baal's territory. God can cross any border. God can cross geographical borders. He can cross spiritual borders. He can cross the border between life and death. We've just sung, you have no rival. You have no equal. God does not come under authority anywhere. He is authority. That's the first contrast. The second contrast is simply this between faith and trust of the widow and the lack of faith and trust of the people of Israel. You see, this story, although it's a nice story for the widow and it's an amazing story for Elijah and, and, and a sort of isolated story, it's actually about a much bigger story. And again, if you heard last week, what we were thinking is about was how Israel had turned their back on Yahweh. They'd, Israel should have been the covenant people of God. They should have been obedient to God. They should have been following His ways. They should have lived in mutual covenant of love and prosperity, of life, of abundance. But in their pride and in their arrogance, they had turned their back on the God that had done so much for them, on Yahweh, who had rescued them centuries before from the promised land, who had kept revealing his love to them and called them back to himself. They'd decided that they were not going to follow him anymore. They had turned their back on him. And in stark contrast, you have the widow, the widow who probably had only ever just heard of Yahweh but didn't really know anything about him. And this prophet comes to visit and gives her a glimmer. And somehow something stirs in her. And in contrast to the Is Israelites who have turned their back on God, she turns towards God. And she says, I can see you are a man of God, and I now know. And God is using this story, God is using this story to highlight to Israel their lack of trust, their lack of obedience, their lack of openness before God, their lack of faith. And he's using this simple widow living in poverty to highlight a whole nation's failure. It's interesting in the current situation in Israel at the moment, just, just struck me that we need to remember that God is the God of Israel and the God of Palestine. And there are people in Israel who faithfully seek God, and there are people in Palestine who faithfully, who faithfully seek God. And God loves them all. And we've seen some atrocious things that Hamas did to, to the Israelite families and people. It's atrocious, but God loves them all. God's heart is broken over all of them, over both nations, over both peoples. 
and there are godly people. We have brothers and sisters in both. We have Christian brothers and sisters in both. And it breaks God's heart as much as it breaks ours. In the middle of this passage, and this was the title from this morning, uh, Elijah promises something to the widow. And he says these three incredibly short but powerful words. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think I read somewhere that that phrase appears over 200 times in the Bible. Don't be afraid. That should be our defining statement as followers of Jesus. Don't be afraid. We're not afraid. Don't be afraid. This can be said because the demand of the covenant on the people, God always comes with a promise. We are in covenant with God because it comes with a promise of God. God says, follow me and I will do this for you. We'll walk together. Trust me and you will see my provision. Obey me and you'll see my hand in your life. The Israelites had failed. This widow in Zarephath, as poor as she was, learned the truth of this. Don't be afraid because the jar of oil will not run out. The bag of, of flour will not run out. Don't be afraid. And this is so important when we think about this because it brings us back to Jesus. John 6, 35, Jesus declares this, I am the bread of life. And I know Elijah hadn't heard of Jesus and this woman hadn't heard of Jesus, but in that moment of being provided for, that was Jesus providing for the widow through his father. He is the bread of life. He who comes to me or she who comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. That's why we don't need to be afraid, because Jesus is the bread of life. Even more importantly, Jesus went on in John 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die, says Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Do not be afraid. Because I am the bread of life, and I am the resurrection and the life. I think when the widow's son died, this God Mott would have been smiling to himself. Ah, you thought you'd got this widow to trust you, but now I've taken her hope away. But what Mott didn't know until that moment was that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus isn't bounded geographically, spiritually. Jesus isn't bounded by anything. He has crossed the great divide between death and life. He himself died and was brought back to life in resurrection power. So raising a widow's son that's nothing. He, I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, church. 
because he is the resurrection and the life. Just to close, what does this mean for us? I, I just want to make a couple of very quick points. I think, I think I've got two minutes left before the youth come taking it back for communion. Two responses to each of those contrasts. The first one is to do with God's. Now, we, we mustn't overplay. We mustn't overplay um, the power of evil because we have been told to not be afraid. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. But I was thinking about these gods, and I was thinking that sometimes when we read these Bible stories, particularly Old Testament stories, we go back to the gods, and we, oh, isn't that quaint? They believed in this thing called Baal, and they, they made an image of him on a pole, and we, they worshipped him. How, how quaint and kind of uh, prehistoric. But the fact is, I, I don't believe Baal existed, but I do believe that there is a power behind Baal that made him effective, Otherwise, why would you have had such a hold over Ahab, over Jezebel, over the, over the people of Israel? You see, what we need to remember is, as it says in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against powers and authorities, darkness, spiritual darkness. Now, I'm not overplaying it because we're commanded to not be afraid because I am the resurrection and the life. But sometimes I think we forget that we are in a battle, a battle that Jesus has ultimately won and a battle that one day will be finally over, but a battle nonetheless. And, and I, I won't tell you what your gods are with a small g, what your idols are. You probably know what your idols are. But I think sometimes we can... We can trivialize the power of the idols in our lives. And I want to encourage us to reflect on that, not out of fear. I'm saying it again because he is the resurrection and the life, but out of, out of um, conscientious discipleship. And when we wake up in the morning knowing that actually sometimes evil forces will have a go at us and will try and persuade us about foreign gods. They won't be called Baal. They might be called money. It won't be called mot, it might be called ambition, or whatever it is for you. And we mustn't get over-anxious about them, but we need to be aware that we need to acknowledge God's authority in our lives before these gods, these idols that we set up. If, if, if that worries you, then don't worry about it. Because God, it, also in Ephesians, Paul has given us this list of armor that we can put on, the belt of truth, the, blessed breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's given us the armor, but we need to remember that sometimes we are in a battle. And the second is this, and I close with this, and it's good that we're coming for communion because I think in communion we get a chance to do this. As I said, one of the reasons behind this story is that it would highlight to the people of Israel how they had turned their back on God and had walked away. And that's contrasted with this widow who showed amazing faith and trust and obedience to God's voice spoken to her. And so as we come up for communion in a moment, what I'd love you to do is if you need to, Treat this as a moment maybe of confession, but a moment of returning. I think it's good that we do communion where you have to walk forward because I think walking forward is a bit of a prophetic action, like I was saying about prophets. 
we walk forward to receive God again. And in doing so, we're saying, okay, God, I might not have trusted you as much, but I'm trusting you this morning. I may have turned my back on you, but I'm walking forward today. I'm coming to receive from you. I may not have been as obedient in the last seven days or the last seven years as you would have wanted me, but today, like that widow, I'm coming forward to receive all the goodness you have for me, symbolized in the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Jesus. And come back to him this morning. Come back to him and declare, like the widow, that the word of the Lord is truth. Come back and receive Don't be afraid, because he is the resurrection and the life. Amen.